Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. gentlemen thank you for joining us for the very start of season two of get to the good part we're jumping right back in to the shit with chapter 15 of ready player one a chapter that begins shortly after the stacks have been blown to pieces what Mm. else can you say about it (laughs) it's one of those wow moments like like how do you continue a chapter after something like that? Like, what's the next move after, oh, dude, just blew up your home and everyone around it? Well, you go check your email. What? <laughs> <laughs> what I'd, I'd else would you do? I pull up my phone. Hold on, I want to check Facebook. I've got to get an Instagram of this. <laughs> Selfie, Selfie that's next to the stacks. Hey, you just, you got to see a friendly face. <laughs> Hashtag <laughs> IOI sucks. <laughs> But that's oh, no, that's how chapter fourteen ends. It, it it ends on the line. I you know I desperately needed to see a friendly face, and so the first person he calls, of course, is H, right? And uh, H, yep. of course, answers within the first couple of rings. Uh, we had talked about this when we were doing notes for the show. Uh, this is a really interesting chapter to me, and I'm probably overthinking it, but you know that's why we have a podcast. Um, I think. This is a really interesting view on the character of Wade. Um, throughout the beginning part of the chapter, he's he, he's kind of talking about or reminiscing about, you know, the people who lived in the stacks. You know, I mean, it's occurring to him that his aunt and, uh, you know, step uncle or whatever the fuck you want to call him, Rick, <laughs> the garbage, the, 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 the dumpster fire that was Rick as a human being <laughs> is now is now dead. But he thinks about Mrs. G, you know, and it occurred to me when I read that part of the chapter that there really is nobody in real life that Wade has to connect with anymore. I think that's that's almost an advantage, because if you think about some of the great stories that are out there, you can't be more powerful while you're alive. But if you can somehow create influence while people perceive you as dead, you reach a level of godlike status and you could almost say that um, Halliday has reached that place. I mean, he's dead, but he's reached a godlike status, almost a ghostly presence over the oasis that people acknowledge now. But with no one else alive, technically alive, that knows he is still alive, at this point, he's scared. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, holy crap, he's going to be, he could be an incredibly powerful presence while people think he's dead. So, you're you're going back to the common trope, and I think we've discussed this before on the podcast, but I guess we'll flesh it out a little more now, that every great story has an orphan. <laughs> Harry Potter, orphan. Luke Skywalker, orphan. I could go on, but I won't. <laughs> I wasn't quite the direction I was going with, but that's a good point. Yeah. So and are it, you saying that, that like his power sort of lies in like having no ties to the Earth New World? I think his powers lie in absolute anonymity now. Okay. And and by being believed him to be dead, he is not going to be looked at for a while. Like, he's not going to be hunted. He could kind of survive and persist in the world, and they're not going to think he's dead. Okay. They're going after so someone else now. That's sort of an aside point from what I was talking about. Right, right. Yeah. But okay. I like where you're going with that, though. It, it made me kind of think about whether or not, if he's like, progressing in the oasis after they think he, they've killed him. Can they like look up his avatar and see like if he's leveling up or anything? Great question. Cause throughout the chapter that, that was something that I was consistently thinking about because he, he, he wakes up, he just immediately goes back into the oasis as Parzival pretty quickly. Right. 
Right, right. Pretty darn quickly. Was it, and I'm having, I'm getting a little muddled here, but was it the end of chapter 14 or the beginning of chapter 15 that he basically, he he logs back in and he's on Ludus? It is the beginning of chapter 15. Yes, it's the beginning of chapter 15 and he sees the Sixer gunships and then he ducks for cover because he doesn't want them to see him. But then he's like, oh, wait a minute. It's a no PVP zone. I'll be safe. But he never says, oh, they think I'm dead. I don't want to know that i'm alive like that i don't think that ever really registered with him as a character that like i can use my apparent death to my advantage yeah it never fleshed out like i had hoped it would in this chapter this was just his apparent shock in going into the oasis and then realizing all hell broke loose like it didn't even matter anymore Mm. i thought you know if i was his character i would have taken the money (laughs) in the last episode we were talking about would we take the money and this episode it's apparent that they know where it is they're going in they're they're beating it he could have taken the money and it wouldn't have mattered i it wouldn't matter to him though yes yes yeah he he's a character with morals and principles and things like that yeah and i'm i'm a (laughs) i'm a character without yeah it's like somebody's waving uh was it five million dollars was the first one and then you know, when you put it that way, I, I don't mind actually not having more. Guys, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you played D&D out there, but uh, Chris's character was always a roguish dickhead. <laughs> no, I've never played D&D, but I really want to. It's role playing. It's not real me. Well, it might be a little bit real me. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I think there's a, there's a whole Freudian id conversation to be had about that, Chris. <laughs> But another episode. At, yeah, another episode. Uh, at any rate, uh, what I'm kind of getting at is, you know, there's there's a lot of conversation. We won't get too into spoiler territory here, but there's a whole lot of conversation about how Wade treats his relationship with Artemis going forward in the book, specifically how he kind of takes a little break from the competition of it all. Um, and focuses primarily on his relationship with Artemis. Now, I know there's a couple people listening, Ray, one of them that is, that is, that is fully on Team Artemis here. Um, this is one point where I'm on Team Wade. Now, imagine, you know, he, he goes through this sort of awful childhood. He loses his mom at a pretty young age. His dad, he barely remembers, right? He moves into basically a laundry room. <laughs> and you know with with Ann Alice and Uncle Dickhead and he has to just kind of figure it out on his own right and he he does a pretty good job at doing that and he makes some friends in the Oasis along the way but Mrs. G was sort of an anchor point for him in the stacks it was like like to me it was like his his connection with reality it was his one last bastion of you know people can be good you know what I mean like, like there are good people in the world because he didn't have that. You know, I mean, even pe- people at school sucked. Uh, you know, people people that he lived with sucked. There's a, there's really no connection with that inherent good of humanity. And I think the book touches on that at a lot of uh, a lot of different points that, you know, whether or not humanity is still inherently good. But he finds good in Artemis. I think he finds it in H2 and stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, he's He's going through his formative years. He finds it in a, in a girl and he he throws all of his chips in. Now, a lot of people say that, you know, Wade is immature. Wade's not being realistic. Wade is being too desperate and all that kind of thing. But to a certain degree, I kind of connect with Wade here uh, throughout you know, the but- book. Because, like, you know, I mean, if you lose everything, of course, you're going to cling to something, right? But the thing is, everything you just described about Wade Sounds like a typical teenage boy. A typical doesn't teenage boy they're... doesn't have their entire everything they know blown well, except up. Except for in front that, of but like, but except you know, for except for the everything blown up part. Except for that part, but or maybe there's a few people that have shit blow up on their face from time to time. But you know, uh, his behavior as a kid is very stereotypical teenage boy. Sure, you know he's stupid makes a lot of dumb mistakes, particularly with women. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I see him as a 
you know, he's just, he's just your typical kid making typical kid mistakes. And, you know, it, and even I agree. And even in this chapter, he's not thinking of my shit just got blown up. He's thinking I'm jealous of H. At like that's, one that's a point. thing. Yes. At one point. Exactly. At one point. Yes. But like psychologically, that that's not the kind of thing that hits you on. I, th- I think of, you know, a very blatant level. Like, I think it's probably something, you know, I mean, because you think about it, like his aunt is not something that he, he even talks about it. My aunt is not somebody that I was super close with. That's an understatement. <laughs> you know, like he, he, you know, for all intents and purposes, he hated his aunt. He hated, you know, Rick. But still, it was the one connection he had back to his mom. It was the one connection he had back to like a normal life. It wasn't a normal life or anything like that, but life as he knew it was pretty much over at that point. Yeah. And really I'm talking real life, not Oasis life. There's a, there's a, there's a difference between the two because what's the first thing he does very stupidly, as Aaron pointed out, he's, he's going back into the Oasis, not even really thinking like, could they track me? Could they see that I'm still here? Could they see my avatar pop up and say, shit, we didn't get him. Like the first thing he does is I need to see a friendly face. Where's the only friendly face I can find on the Oasis. So that just, to me, highlights the fact that in real life, there's no one left. Yeah, he totally shed his physical life at that point. Yeah. I think that's that's poignant. And I, I don't even think the chapter nails it as well as you nail it. That, that that he had two lives, but one is gone now. All that's left is his van and his headset. His van is the hub for the Oasis for yeah. him. Mr. There's Anderson just to. became Neo. <laughs> <laughs> He swallowed the the blue pill or whichever pill. <laughs> no, Mister Anderson is the he's the he's the uh, you know he's sort of the altering he's the thing that took the back seat. Neo is now you know taking the Parzival is all he has left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely As if it right. wasn't all he had before, but it definitely is now. Right, because he has no other options. I mean, where else does he go? You know? He doesn't even have a warm laundry room to stay in anymore. <laughs> there's no. There's no. There's no dryer sheets filling up his nostrils. It's this fucking van. <laughs> Which, by the way, is not a good place to stay anymore. It smells like old rubber and Cheetos. <laughs> what kind of uh, rubber, Chris? <laughs> Uncomfortable question of the episode. We'd normally edit this out, but I think we're going to let it ride. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so um, so H and Parzival are connecting for. Is this this is? I don't think it's the first time since he found the first gate. Is it? No, nope. since he talked second to, time, right? Second time. Yeah, because the uh, first time was from within the uh, was from within the tomb. Yeah, no. The first time he talks to H after he finishes is when H is outside the tomb. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's outside. Yeah. When he's watching the news coverage and the first time we meet Ogden Morrow in person and all yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but but now he's, t- you know, he's talking to H. He's, you know, it says that he kind of gives him the whole dirty details of the situation, tells him that he actually sat down and met with Sorrento. Uh, I think we covered this in chapter 14, but I kind of want to revisit it now that we've got Aaron on the podcast. Would you have sat down with Sorrento? Yeah, I thought about that a lot uh, preparing for this podcast. And honestly, a good paragraph of my notes is all about me saying how stupid was he to even partake in this meeting without even a better plan? Like this goes into the whole thing about him being an immature kid. Like he didn't think through every possibility, especially after he was warned in the tomb by Artemis that he has information that people would be willing to kill for. And who has the means to kill for it? Iowa. The one person he's going to visit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, that's like stepping into the lion's den with Rami. At the time, he had had no clue that Sorrento or IOI had the information on him that they had. And how would he? Because the only place they would have gotten it is from his school. And to think that your school would be the one to turn you over and basically make you a mark is, it's again, it's that departure from reality. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's. I think we talked about this before too, but I'll revisit it. 
It's like that scene in Clockwork Orange where Alex comes out of prison and who does he go for? He goes for his two droogs, but they're now police officers and they drag him into the woods and they beat him to death. So it's like your family dies, you know, or your family's shit. You you have this thing, you know, come upon you. You have this 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 opportunity to be the first person to find the egg. And who betrays you first? The one institution <laughs> that should not betray you, your school. I mean, at that point, it had to be this occurrence of like, is there no place I can turn? <laughs> like, I can, can I trust no one? I think I, the last... The last episode we 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 chatted on this. My initial thought was I totally would have done it <laughs> because it, for me it was just kind of a a if you're anonymous, if you truly believe you're anonymous, then you can dance with the devil and he doesn't know who you are. But that's that's kind of a conflict of terms there. That's just not going to work out. And in fact, in this chapter, a couple times he mentions in talking with everyone else that they had wisely ignored the emails they received, which means it kind of feels like there's a tinge of regret there. Not that it would have done any different. Like he could have totally been blown up if he had ignored the emails. They would have been like, well, he's not going to answer. We know where he is. Boom, dead. That could have happened anyhow. Sure. But still, he comes out of that saying everyone else wisely ignored it, which kind of feels like they're writing in basically what you just said, which is that that was just the dumbest thing in the world to have done. And now he knows it. Especially after, like, if he didn't realize it before, after they they have given him all this inside information about how they operate, including information that technically disqualifies them from the contest. Which, just for the audience here, which information are you talking about specifically? The the hacked Im- immersion rigs that you know, so that other people can use it. Because like they talk earlier in the book about anybody who gets caught faking retinal patterns. Uh, loses their Oasis account and is disqualified from the contest. Get caught. Get caught. So they just told Wade, we, you know, this is what we do. So now he has information that disqualifies them. He has information that they killed his family too, but no one would believe him. They wouldn't. And I think that goes back to what Wade said. And we're talking chapter 14. I promise guys, we'll move on from this, but (laughs) But but honestly, like, you know, it it goes into what Wade said at the very end of chapter 14. I can't imagine that there's a way out of this. If they actually have a bomb in my place, it doesn't matter what happens. They're going to kill me. And that just further supports what he was thinking. I don't think he didn't bring that point up. But now that you bring it up, it's a really good point. They would have killed him anyways. Absolutely. Yeah. There was no way out of it. for him. Okay, so. uh so anyways, he materialized on Ludus. There are six or gunships on the chapter 15 screaming from the atmosphere coming at him. And uh, who's 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 behind this betrayal? How do how do uh, all the Sixers know where uh, where Ludus is? How do they know where where Wade was, where he went to school, all that kind of thing? One name. Fucking Iraq. Fucking, Fucking asshole. Iraq. This guy. <laughs> what a piece of shit. Uh. God damn it, JT. What a dick. I mean, I still can't get my arms around the fact that being told that two people on the scoreboard were taking advantage of the best public school system available is somehow like, oh, Ludus. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, so what? Like, like, of course that could be a, a possibility, but now all of a sudden that makes people think, oh, it could be on Ludus. Well, I think he he directly said, like, I, I think the the whole the whole idea behind it was Irock said, I know for a fact this kid is poor, can't get anywhere else, so he had to have found it on Ludus. There was no other way for him to find it. That was well, the same. That was the same logic that H had. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the logic that H had and that H explains, but. The book never says that he's that IROC revealed anything other than that they're both students on Ludus. Right. So then they know they knew how to go and find his identity on the, at the school. Yeah. I think the bigger question is how come IROC didn't figure out it was on Ludus before IOI? Because IROC's a fucking dipshit. He is a dipshit. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so this occurred to me, and this is I'm gonna I'm gonna swing wide right here, guys. I'm sorry. 
But uh, there was something in current affairs, a topical thing here, uh, that happened this week that kind of reminded me of this situation, okay? Uh, where you saw a situation where a guy who was out in California uh, engaged in something called swatting. Now, swatting oh, is when yeah, you are, a, you know, when you're gaming with somebody or you're online. And what you do is you call up the, you, you know, your opponent's local jurisdiction and you basically say there's something happening at the house that is awful and you need to send a full team of police in there. I think in this situation, he said that he had shot his dad and they were holding the rest of the family hostage or something like that. Uh, you know, what happens is the local police department sends a, you know, a full SWAT team into this guy's house. He answers the door and makes the wrong move. Cops shoot him down. This is a 28 year old father of two that hits close to me because I'm a father of two and I'm, I'd like to say I'm not too far from 28, but when I think about it, it really makes my stomach hurt I'm farther than I'd like to be. But still, it's it's sort of the same. It's it's sort of the same thing. So I, I see it. I, I see a correlation with Iraq here, where the things you do in the virtual universe, he 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 expects have no consequence because he's been sort of he's been sort of numbed by you know the fact that he lives in this this virtual world where. You know, yeah, you can do anything you want to somebody in there, but in the real world, nothing happens to him. Well, what happens? He comes out in the real world and says, if you don't give me, you know, the location of the first key, then I'm going to out you to the entire world. And what happens? Wade's entire family gets killed. Now, he wasn't that close to him, sure, but if he was, this would be a much bigger deal. It's really close to the swatting incident. <laughs> do, do you His see what I'm saying? Swatted. Yeah, he basically swatted him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sucks. And it's a, that's a, it's a, you know, I have a brother who's a police officer, and it is a, a shitty thing to do on both sides of the fence because you end up p- putting people who, who anticipate a bad situation into a situation that isn't bad, and they're going to respond under the artificial guise that it is. Sure. And in this case, someone got shot. Because they don't know. Yeah, they don't know. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, that, that crossover into reality just shatters that anonymity that you think you've got. But I mean, from, and, from the guy who called in the SWAT, right? You know, I mean, he's thinking this is going to be funny. Nothing's going to happen from it. This is going to be something of no consequence in real life. You know, I'm just going to get this guy. And then I might hear about it on the news, might get a SWAT on the wrist, whatever. But what happens, the guy, the guy dies, you know, there are real consequences to what you do online. (laughs) You know, I think think we see the general thinking. I think the general thinking there is that you're going to get a show where somebody breaks into the house and you get to see the police charge in and kick his ass on camera. In fact, did he get killed while he was on camera? And I know he died. He got shot. But like, did that happen while he was televised? Um, I don't know that the guy was televising to begin with. Well, that's the reason why most people do the swatting because they're there. It's a live stream. And thus you see the whole police action come in and see the dude getting taken down while he's playing a game. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, shitty way to go. Yeah. I mean, either way it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm talking more from the, the perspective of the person who calls in the SWAT, you know, I mean like that cause, cause that's IROC. And Iraq has been presented throughout the book up to this point as somebody who's completely naive to consequences or, you know, I mean, he can he can walk into a room of of, you know, the latest of gunters. I'm using quote fingers here, but the latest of gunters and say, I've got this thing that's an obvious reference and I'm going to quiz you like it's hardcore trivia and then gets his ass handed to him. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the mental state that we're dealing with here. I mean, it's sort of like he flagrantly gave Wade an H up without any thought of consequence. I don't know. I I feel like it's sort of topical. I don't know. It's it's the worst douchery that you could do to somebody virtually. Yeah. Yeah. And if he were offered that money from IOI, he'd be rolling around in it on his bed. Oh, yeah. You know, he's a douche. He wouldn't care that the rest of the Oasis would need to, you know, spend a lot of money to subscribe and look at ads and whatever he would just be like heck i can afford it now yeah i can see that douchebag douchebag 
So future swatter Irock sells out <laughs> sells out Wade far before the beginning of this chapter, but I think it's kind of confirmed here with H saying like this this had to be it. Um, kind of confirming Wade's sus- uh, suspicions. Uh, lets him know that he talked to Sorrento, and like we said before, I mean, at this point, he he kind of just breaks down. Um, you know, the meeting that he had with uh, with Sorrento breaks down. You know, the shit that had happened to him in real life is as a as a consequence of going up against the IOI, or as a consequence of being the one who's just smart enough to figure it out. You know, I mean, it's I don't know why. But for some reason, this 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 chapter hits me harder than chapter chapter fourteen. It really, really does because it's it's Wade coming to the realization that the only thing that he did wrong in this situation it really is the only thing that he did wrong was find it first, and his entire world has been destroyed. Yeah, I, I felt the same way when I read this chapter too. Uh, my first thought, I think, rereading this at least was how would I feel going into a situation knowing that there's only four people in the world that are going to believe me. There are people that are in my situation and they are powerless to help me. Like there is nothing you could do. Imagine the biggest wrong that could be done to you that would still leave you alive and knowing that you could not go to the police, the media, or anyone and have anyone actually believe that's the case. It's, it's really just, there's, there's no justice in that point. So you feel completely helpless, completely powerless. And I was really just thinking when I read this, how powerless would I feel having that sort of thing happen to me or attacked at me and narrowly escape and be basic. There's nothing I can do about that. Just no way that I can get back at them. And you're 18 at the time. You're a child. Yeah. You're an idiot. (laughs) 18 year olds are idiots. You're a fucking idiot. (laughs) This is Rubik's Cube, and you're, 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 you're barely playing checkers here. <laughs> I, well, I was just kind of comparing it, and we can reflect back on, on current events, but a certain undercurrent of powerlessness at least has company in the masses, and company in the masses can come together and sort of support each other and stand outside in front of whatever, holding signs saying, there's a fucking million of us, it's not one voice that's small. It's 11 million voices that are relatively small by themselves. But at least you've got the power of them coming together under a single purpose. He doesn't have that here. Right. It's just got four other people that don't care to actually help each other. Right. They make that very clear. I and mean, they're opponents. They are opponents. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, they are all opponents. And you've got to. OK, so let's flip the script here. This okay. this book is written from the pers- uh, the perspective of Wade, right? I mean, he's our narrator. But imagine this from the perspective of, say, H or Artemis, probably more specifically Artemis, right? Do you look at Wade and say, "Did this really happen? Did he see? Did he see something like a stacks like stacks getting blown up on the news and thought he could throw us off off the scent?" Like, is there like, an inch of skepticism that she carries throughout the book? Just does not trust him because she's she's sort of maybe a little bit skeptical that this situation happened or not. I think that she has uh, a bit of a implied trust of him because of the meeting in the Tomb of Horrors. Sure. You know, like she had like they very quickly had a rapport and she went through that whole speech about how, like, she respects him as a gunter and all that. So maybe that that connection is just like this glue with them. And like all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I don't know. I know exactly what Chris is about to say. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> that entire interaction that they first had was founded on two sides of two different lies, though. It was her buttering him up in order to get him to help her when she obviously was struggling with the Tomb of Horrors. And it was him lying to her in order to cover his ass that he had the key. Like, the none of that was true. The first thing they did was lie. The first thing they did to each other was lie. So All it's like they're flirting. on a date or something. It's like they met <laughs> exactly. at a bar. It's, it's like they met at a bar, and they're both trying to put on, like, the best fake facade that they could for each other, knowing that their real life just is not going to work. <laughs> Uh, 
yeah, I mean, it was only until she realized he had the key and then she called his ass out and got real. And then he finally kind of broke down and got real. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until she drug his ass out onto the carpet and said, hey, you did this thing. It's like, oh, OK, you got me. So I could see. I think it's a great perspective that maybe from Artemis's perspective or anyone else's that somebody else might look at him and go, really? You're playing the long con. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. You're, you're working yeah. us. I mean, I think it's a good point from from Parzival's perspective. Yeah, this meeting is going to happen. It's going to be great. But like if it were written from anyone else's perspective, except for maybe H, why do you go to this meeting? Well, that's that's a good segue into the next point in the chapter. So this is the first meeting of the high five. That's what we've been talking about. The high five is the top five people on the scoreboard. And right now that consists of part of Parzival. It consists of Artemis, of course, H and Daito and Shoto. And what they basically decide to do is Wade, his 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 initial uh, I guess intention for calling H is to warn him. Um, and we'll break this up a little more as we go on, but I, I think it's, it's sort of telling throughout the book that like the first person he thinks to call is, is H and not Artemis, but I don't know. There, there, there might be something to be extracted there, but, uh, but he calls up H and, you know, lets him know the situation. He says, you know what, let's, let's open up the chat room the high five and let's warn them all about what's happening right now that that IOI is reaching out and blowing up people's houses and shit like that um so they decide to do that wade gets there a little bit early h hugs him lets him know everything's going to be okay and uh before a few minutes can pass artemis is walking down the stairs um before you know it the whole chat room is populated with the high five um and that sort of picks up where we left off there. Uh, the question, Aaron, you, you brought up, why the hell would these five get together in the first place? I think, because I thought about that too. Like, why would you enter a room filled with the people that you are, for all intents and purposes, opposing in this competition? But I think Artemis kind of lays it out. And she says, how could I miss this? Because every single one of them assumes that they are the smartest person in the room. And if you get the five people who are the farthest along in this com- this competition in one room, somebody might spill some beans. I think well, that's I, their thought. I think that's all of their thought going on. I, I think that the I think the logic here at the very least is like if you took like the five greatest competing musicians in any particular genre. Yeah, what you know, they're going to be kind of like fans of each other to an extent sure. because they all, in their own right, found the key on their own. Even if it's exposed that that there was kind of like they're passing around. Well, he was there first, or he hinted me to this, and then it made sense because of that. But what it really comes down to is they all used their own natural senses to kind of detect or discern where the place was. And they're all adm- ad- have sort of like an equal mutual admiration of each other. I mean, why wouldn't you want to meet both your enemy and possibly your most respected adversaries at least once? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, without, I mean, this may be hinting a little bit down the road, so I'm going to try to be discreet. You can, but you like, can toss out like a light spoiler here. <laughs> but I, I can see... H and Artemis being all for it. But based on the actions of Dido and Shoto later, mm-hmm. I don't understand why they're in this chat room, except for maybe one thing. And it goes back to the conversation in the tomb between Artemis and Parzival is that she was dying to talk to somebody about this. And so now someone set up a meeting where we can all talk about it. You know, they can get things off their chest. There's, you know, they got this far. They, you know, every, they know. That's the only motivation, I think, for, for Dido and Shoto, but they can still talk to themselves about it. I think, and I might be way off base here, but I think there's an honor code. I think that's the reason they're in the room. Because they, they make a point to say, we would not have found this without you. And, and they even ask shortly thereafter, like, why are we here? Like, I, th- I, th- I think they're there because they realize they would not have found it without them. 
Yeah, but they also made a point to like when Shoto implied that that's they found out because of the um, the forum post. Dido, you know, you know, elbows him and says, "Keep quiet, blabbermouth." Right. <laughs> As if nobody was going to figure out or didn't know already that that's how. Like, of course, they are there because they put two and two together because of the forum posts. That's obvious. There's no reason to hide that. Well, I think it might be embarrassing from a from a perspective of people who perceive themselves as the best and then admitting that they're not or that they had to rely on somebody else in order to get the answer. And then there's a kind of a I don't want to say shame, but shame is kind of a part of this whole conversation honor wise, you know, to just shut the heck up. Stop shaming me for having figured sure. it out because of this way. Right. But still, there is this uh, I think just the incentive to go there. Is just the ability to meet the person who, the honor of meeting the person who made it possible for you to get the key, even if you didn't admit that they made it possible to get the key. And again, if you're if you're talking fanfic, this would be an excellent fan fiction chapter to talk about Dido and Shoto talking about going into the first high five meeting. Mm. I would love to see that scene of the two of them going back and forth as to w- what the merits are, why or why they should not go there. Because they, they, they clearly, they're not in sync when they go in. One of them no. that wants, the, you know, is fine with being there. The other one is not. And it, it would make such a great dynamic chapter. It, it kind of makes me wish that Ernest Klein, when he written this book, had split off into those alternate storylines here and there. Every now and again, you get a chapter from a different perspective. But, he needs to write it like um, Game of Thrones, where you have a chapter from each perspective. That would have been awesome. Or, you know, he could just put out, what, four other books or three <laughs> other books? That is the same story from every character's perspective. And I would buy each one of those maybe 15 times and then give them all away to people. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll <laughs> see how the movie plays. <laughs> I'm all for that. I'm all for that, but I want him to write Anorax Almanac first. Yeah, that yeah. would be super uh, cool. That'd be a neat collectible, right? I think the oh onus God. is on us to write Anorax Almanac at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we might be the most qualified. I include Ernest Klein in that. <laughs> We have spent way too much time talking about this book. <laughs> I wonder, you know, you know what I want to do? I We've talked about a thousand times, like the one question we would ask Ernest Klein if he were on the podcast. We were talking about it just before we started recording. And I think the one question I would ask him is how long did it take you to write the book? Like hours wise, not like, you know, like I, I wrote an hour here and then there was the rest of a day. And then, so, of course, it took three years to write the book. Hours-wise, just give me a guesstimate. I just wonder how much, <laughs> how much time it took for a to weekend. write the book versus how much it has taken to, for us to talk about it. <laughs> if they even compare. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to know that one. I don't want to know either. <laughs> or how much time you've, you've taken to, like, research it or read it. I would be... It's like I, I, not... Go ahead. I would be curious to know if, like, because th- there's a lot of information that he pulls, you know, from the eighties era and puts it into the book. And how much of that did he just know versus how much did he have to like go on Wikipedia and be like, okay, that's the, that's the right line from that, uh, from that movie. Or, you know, all, I want to know how much of it was actually just kind of like bubbling in his brain versus how much he had to kind of like, you know, like he already kind of knew, but he needed some reinforcement. Well, I'd be very curious. One of the things you brought up when we were talking about notes for this episode, great segue into the next part. Uh, you had talked about how Artemis walks in and says, this is an exact replica of Halliday's boyhood uh, home. Yeah. No, uh, Mora, boyhood he home. says you've recreated Mora's Mora, basement sorry. perfectly. She says, yeah. And uh, and when we talked about H's basement way back in, I think it was the third or fourth chapter. Probably. Yeah. We, mm-hmm. we didn't say anything about it being a recreation of Morrow's basement, did we? Nope. Yeah. It was just a, you know, a 
on a, a basement circa 1984 or whatever. Yeah, I forget the exact line. I should have pulled it up as part of my notes, but it never says that he recreated the basement that, you know, Morrow and Halliday were doing their, you know, uh, gregarious games. So there's two there's two ways to look at this. One, Ogden Morrow, I don't think, or maybe he had been he'd been mentioned at that point in the book, but he hadn't been mentioned as somebody who'd be like a consequential part of the book. I think if you read the if you read the prologue, you probably assume that he will be, which seems weird that they would leave it out. But, you know, I mean, maybe they weren't trying to or maybe he was trying not to tip off that this was going to be uh, a pivotal point in the book. Uh, Or maybe it was retconned. We're not really sure. But at the end of the chapter, (laughs) at the end of this very chapter, uh, we have a situation happen that tips off to something we find out uh, a little bit later in the book. A little bit later. How do we do? Do we really want to cover that? And how I'm do you not even know where I'm not sure where you're going with this. Okay, so oh, the that, the, that that yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah 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 yeah. So and, and when Aaron brought this up, I thought it was a really good point. I think this is the first evidence that we have that Ernest Klein retconned the story as he was going along. If that's the case, I kind of have a little more respect for how the book was written because he was kind of feeling it out as he went. You know, Maybe I mean, thought, like halfway through he's like we really need this other character and then he goes back and kind of inserts hints of him well he found a he found a he found a good insertion point and if he was thinking so far ahead that he would introduce ogden morrow as a pivotal character in the book and i don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that ogden morrow is a huge pivotal character in the book because I think maybe three chapters ago, the entire chapter was about Ogden Morrow. So, you know, he's coming up. He's going to, he's going to have something to do with it. But, you know, I mean, like for, for them to go back and say, this is a complete recreation of Ogden Morrow's basement. And then at the very end of the chapter for the thing to happen, it almost seemed like when he was writing this chapter, he had that revelation of this is how, this is how I incorporate him into the end of the book. Or maybe he went back and fit that in. I don't know. Oh, I see what you're saying. I didn't quite pick up on that. Is uh, I thought this was kind of like an introductory thing. So there's but a very, you're really you're really you're really just saying like how does how does he get incorporated into their lives? Right. And this this is that minor hint that will explain that point later yes. on. Yeah. So uh, if you haven't read the book yet, which if you're listening to this podcast, I think that's maybe one or two of you. But if the one or two of you uh, who haven't read this book yet for some reason paused and waited for this podcast to come back out, first of all. I'm really fucking sorry. But (laughs) secondly, (laughs) I do want to say, just shut this off for maybe the next minute or two. Okay. Um, There's a point at the very end of the chapter where a stack of books or a stack of magazines or something like that gets shoved off of a table. Right. And we don't find out until later in the book that that is basically the specter of Ogden Morrow in the room listening to what's happening in that conversation, being there for the first meeting at the high five. Yeah. That, now, that, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I thought that was kind of interesting because it, it actually comes to point. Like, is there somebody here that's invisible? Like that's a thing. Like that could be a thing. Like he's troubleshooting his paranoia. And I'm thinking, cause I just finished playing a, a game last night. That's in an alpha state. And when I see something bug, it does something wholly unusual. Like, parking a gargantuan ship and accidentally hitting a bar and it flapping around like a, a flag in the wind. Sure. That's wholly unusual. This was like naturally the book sliding off and falling onto the ground. I would expect in a bug, the books would fall off and then jerk back into place and then rubber band a little bit. Like it's weird that they would just <laughs> knock everything it as else a bug. off the shelves. <laughs> and see, and, and here's the thing that bothers me about these complex falling off the shelf. Right. So you know, and we're still in spoiler territory, so if people are hopefully not listening right now, but if Ogden Morrow is, you know, like reach for these comic books and knocks them over, right? Someone was going to notice this invisible avatar manipulating comic books. What was he doing? I don't, I think it was an accident. I think he admits that he was being clumsy. But like, so you just stand still. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and you evaporate out of there or whatever godlike feature you have your, to your avatar. <laughs> you hit the pause button on your magical screen of actions that you can do. Sit on the stairs, you know. And... <laughs> <laughs> Don't go bumbling around and knocking shit off a shelf. No, was he drunk? <laughs> Probably what it was was he's like, wow, somebody got this right. He probably goes to that room all the time. Every time it's up, he's like, that's just like being in my boyhood home. This is awesome. I'm just hanging out. Oh, wait, there's a meeting going on. Oh, shit. I want to listen to this. But he I think he well, let's okay. I'm going to break apart from spoiler territory here. If you're if 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 you're skipping ahead and you're looking for a place to break away from spoilers, this is it. Um, Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to rewind a little bit, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about the dynamic of the high five during their first meeting. Now, it's it seems pretty friendly at first. Uh, we get sort of what I think Ray, uh, if for those of you who don't know, Ray is the super fan of Ready Player One. Angie Ray, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, Woo. I'm sure. Um she 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 finds she finds the skeeziness in Wade almost unbearable at times. And I gotta admit, if there's one time that I find Wade's Wade's skeeziness unbearable, it's in this moment when he starts to get jealous of Artemis and H talking. I cringed a little bit. It was it was hard to it was it was hard to hear. It, in the context of the fact that his life just got blown up right in front of his face. And he's what, what, still thinking about, you know, his, his second head. What's the next worst thing that could happen? Your best friend hitting on the girl that you're totally <laughs> in love with. Like, my life just got destroyed, and now I'm having a meeting where my best friend is totally chatting it up and impressing the girl that's the love of my life. I'm going to be honest with you. My internal dialogue would be, Stop fucking talking to her. Stop it, man. <laughs> I would never say it because that would be me being a skeezy asshole. But deep down inside, I would totally feel it. Yeah. At, at least at that age. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think that's part of it. I don't think he's really it, this is kind of a dark thing, but I don't really think he's thinking about the fact that everything he knews, everything he knew, everything he knew just got blown up. I think he's I, I think he's more thinking about the fact that somebody's looking cooler than him or somebody's, or, you know, got one up on him. And like that's what makes the first it girl he's ever spoken to ever is yeah. talking to someone else and loving on his room. Yes. Like, I want to be here all the time. And he's like, you've got an open invitation, girl. That's awesome. And be like, all right, all right. We got to talk about stuff. <laughs> yeah, chill out. Let's, let's move on. Let's move on. T T T T T. No, but like you know, it, but, but to the same degree, I would I would offer this as the counterpoint. He's he's talking about somebody like like not only like Artemis does he have some feelings for, but also H is somebody who he has always competed with. You know that's what I mean? Oh, that's rough. Yeah, that sort of alpha alpha competition thing going on. Yeah. I mean, it's not just like it's your best friend, but at the same time, it's also your your strongest competition. If there's somebody that you think would take the girl away from you, it's going to be this guy with the Cheshire grin coming and in. And the kick-ass basement. <laughs> yeah, like and, you know, and, and on top of that, they both have a lot in common because they're both, you know, as far as the Oasis is concerned, competitors in the Oasis, not just for the the egg. But in their own right, they are ass kickers and they are popular. You know, they're both kind of like super bloggers, if you will, with the activities that they do. So, yeah, he has every right to feel threatened. And I think, too, like he's he's always the way that he references H every now and again, it feels kind of hollow. But he says, like, this is the only other person than me that can do this. And like, you know, I mean, like it always feels it, it rings kind of hollow because what he seems to be saying is this is somebody that I respect. But he also Artemis is the only other person in the book that he talks about like that, because when he talks about Dido and Shadow, he never really talks about them. Like, of course, he respects them. But at the same time, he doesn't talk about them like like, you know, with with the same kind of reverence that he talks about Artemis and age. I think he holds them both up on like a pedestal. And you know, whether or not he'll admit it, he considers himself slightly below that pedestal. Yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So this is a psychology one. podcast, folks. <laughs> so if we can just quickly jump into slight spoiler territory, because there's part of this exchange they have about the how great the basement is and uh, the invitation to go back there that I'm pretty sure I did not pick up on the first time I read it, but the second time you notice it. So uh, we'll do a spoiler alert, sort of. But there's the line where you know he where H says you have a permanent spot on the guest list. Come on down anytime. She says, "Really, thank you. You're you are the man, H." And then he says, "Yes, it's true. Yeah, I am. I am." <laughs> I think you know what, when I read that, <laughs> or, or I should say, when I had uh, Will Wheaton sweetly it. read it to me, uh, you're right, that part just stood out. Yes. Because, you know, it, I was like, <laughs> that's funny. It's one of those things you, you don't pick up on because it just seems like normal banter. But then the second time, I was like, ah, I see what you were doing there. <laughs> you got me. Second or third read kind of stuff. <laughs> That's that is nice. I, I just had to mention that because, like, uh, first it's on my screen right now, and it's just like staring at me, and I'm like, "Yeah, that was great." <laughs> <laughs> so, for all intents and purposes, the rest of this, uh, the rest of this exchange is fairly formal. Wade basically gives them the lowdown on how threatening IOI actually is. Uh, sort of their plan for taking over the contest and the lengths that they're really, uh, really willing to go to. Um, Dino and Shoto, uh, I want to talk about this before we end the podcast tonight. Um, we we touched on it before, but I, I think it deserves its own little moment in the spotlight. The interaction between Wade, H, and and, and Artemis seems fairly natural. Like, it almost seems like old friends. Mm. But Dido and Shoto are really kind of like standout characters in this part of the chapter. Like, they 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 almost seem like, uh, you know, one of them doesn't want to be there. The other one is like really kind of clamoring to make, you know, the, the pair feel like they belong. You know, it, it just seems like a very out-of-sync coupling between well, the two. It, it, it kind of becomes clear that it's... Yeah, you know, they're they're not necessarily equals. Sure. Like one is subservient, if that's a word, right? Subservient. It is subservient. Yeah. Like, you know, like he he gets elbowed by Dido. Like, keep quiet, blabbermouth. Like, treating him like a child. I mean, like little brother. That's what he yeah, calls li- him. Yeah, little, little brother. brother. You know, and like the like I the first time I read this, I'm like I'm picturing like what it was like to be the younger brother (laughs) and being harassed by your older brother. And like, you know, like they're, they're not acting like equals. And and they're definitely not. I mean, these are avatars. Your height doesn't have to be your actual height. You can be a gargantuan Mm -hmm. monster if you want to, but here it actually portrays one is sort of the master and the other one is sort of the servant. One is, a whole foot taller than the other. And that doesn't have to be the case in the Oasis. But in this situation, it almost visually symbolizes the the perspective that the two have of each other, to, more to, to the point that I think you were getting at. Yeah, and it, it also makes me kind of think that Dido is a real dick. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm, the thing that I think, and I'm going to... As I end every podcast, it seems like I'm going to throw back to is like, I feel like this is this is Ernest Klein. He he really has a skill for throwing you a red herring, because I think one of the one of the biggest surprises in the book, uh, you know, aside from some of the others that if you've read through the entire book, you, you probably know about. But is the relationship between Dido and Shit. To me, when I read that part in the book, later on, you'll find out later on in the book, like, you know, the relationship between Dino is sort of an, an understated part of the book. It's, it's very small. But to me, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I mean, like the relationship between the two of them is not what it seems. 
And you'll find that out later in the book, it's which definitely... makes this whole dynamic much fucking weirder. Mm. It's not yeah, a player yeah, one, does. player two situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get that. I, as I as I went through the book the first time, I think I, I had the same sort of conclusion, and maybe that's a purposeful conclusion that he's a dick. But as I progressed through, and as the the characters grew, there's a depth to that relationship that that throws into a weird sort of oddity of the kinds of relationships and dynamics you can have in a virtual world that would not exist in the real world, mm-hmm. or at least not how you would come to it. That in this world, you can be someone's brother in, a, in an almost literal way in mm-hmm. the virtual world and not have to be blood, but you can accept him as that. And then the Oasis reflects that out in, in the constructs of their character you look at them and you go one looks like a younger version of the other by about five years yeah like snapshots of the same young man taken five years apart exactly it's one of the most genius parts of the book that the lines between friend family people that you meet on the internet are completely blurred in the future it's all about the connection that you make with somebody and i think that dips back to that if you've ever had friends that were so close they were adopted family I think mm-hmm. that's the closest you can come to mm-hmm. in in the real world that's reflected way more literally in the virtual world. Which ties back to the very beginning of the chapter when Wade says, I just need to see a friendly face. That, that's actually the end of the previous chapter. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's kind of, whatever. It starts, it, it, it starts still when... It's, it's all the same. We're going to blur the, the lines a little. It's all the same, but... But the idea being that where does he go, you know, when he's pressed, where does he find family? And it almost seems like, you know, I mean, we, we discovered this for the, you know, through the first half of the book. I don't think we're quite through half of the book yet, but we're, we're close. But it's, you know, that that line between what is family and what is not, what is, you know, what is close to you, and what is not is completely blurred by this interface that you know, resembles reality. And if, you know, I mean, there, there are parallels to be drawn with the whole, you know, uh, with, with, you know, simulation theory and things like that. When you get that deep into, you know, when you get to the inception point of, of, you know, of, 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 you know, these kinds of simulations, like what is the beginning and end of reality? Who is your family and who is not, you know? I mean, it's, it's it's one of the it, it's one of the interesting parts of the book that I think goes underexamined by the people who just decide to holy shit on it by reading as some sort of young adult novel and not embracing just kind of the fun of it right off you know right off the top. Yeah, I mean, from an overall perspective, I consider the book to be like Animaniacs. Uh, you you can say that it's for kids, but as an adult. I would watch Animaniacs if it was still playing today because it is so intelligent and there's several layers of depth that kids just won't get. But to just say it's a children's cartoon is just wholly unfair to the art of it. It's not playing today and I still watch it. (laughs) (laughs) So if you don't care, can I, can I reflect on something that I took away? Cause you guys have covered like a ton of stuff that I didn't even think about. Please. But, but there is like a an overarching concept here that I noticed when I was looking at this, which was this is the first time I felt in the book that there was a jumping off point for character development. Because come the end of this chapter, we are looking at several examples of pride and ego and arrogance that all of them end up growing out of. But you have to start somewhere. And this chapter starts with their flaws coming together, kind of like superheroes that that are wholly independent and all believe they kicked major superhero ass. And then you say, okay, you five superheroes are going to come together and you're going to have to work together. And they're like, screw that. I'm a loner. I'm a superhero. Screw you all. Mm. You have that initial conflict where they don't understand each other's weaknesses and strengths, but eventually down the road, they're going to have to grow. But you have to start with the conflict. And in here, the conflict is Parzival in his lowest point won't accept money from H. His pride is too deep. 
and he and they've even mentioned before, like H wouldn't offer money to him because that would be an insult. H now is breaking his own rule by saying, "That's that's beyond scope, dude. Let me help you. Do you need a place to crash? Do you need some cash? Let me help you." Parsifal's pride won't let it happen. Uh, Artemis is like, you know what? I'm doing this myself. You know that if you got it, you wouldn't share, and if I got it, I wouldn't share. So let's just incorporate her greed into the mix. Daito and Shoto are a total level of sort of ego and pride. We're better than everyone else. We we only work together. I think you're trying to say we should come together. Forget you guys. We're walking. That there's this this base level of conflict that they're going to end up growing out of. And I kind of liked this chapter for that reason because it acts as the springboard of flaws that they're going to have to grow out of. Yeah. See, I, I noticed the same thing, but uh, particularly with Parzival and H, because from the first words of the chapter to the last words of the chapter, it's basically flipping a coin. You know, it starts out with Parzival or uh, H giving Parzival a hug, you know, like, man, you just went through hell. I'm so sorry. This sucks. We're going to get back at them. No, don't worry about it. And then when they part, it's like, we got to work on the next key. So yeah, we're, you're on your own now. He, he does still offer him a place to crash. Like he that does. last couple paragraphs is kind of like, are you sure you don't need money in a place to crash? So it's kind of like this, even though we're going to work independently because that's what we do, I'm still reaching out to you. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. And even Artemis kind of has a hint of like, you know, I guess it would, would it be so bad if we had an alliance? But then she says, well, I, I'm the lone wolf type. So adios, boys. You know, like it's, it's such a weird chapter like that. She, yeah. I know she, pl- she played that like she was just watching it for entertainment. Like she could pull oh. out a, a bucket of popcorn. It's just like, you boys go at it. Uh, yeah, she uh, was just watching them whip their dicks out. It was great. <laughs> Uh, that thought hadn't crossed my mind, but that's a good point. <laughs> Before we stop, I I do wanna I do wanna hit on something that when I read it, let I remember when I first read the book, I I kind of like doubled back on this because I thought I'd missed something. I don't blame you, he said. Thank God you weren't home when it happened. Now I read that part back to myself like a thousand times, like the 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 I don't blame you part. And I'm, I'm I'm probably overthinking it now that I think back on it. But when I initially read it, I read it as I don't blame you for the shit coming down. It's it's neat that you read it that way, uh, or at least initially that it hit you that way. Because just coming into the chapter, I could totally see why you'd think the chapter the chapter might go in that direction or that somebody else might blame them like you freaking idiot. Why did you accept the email? Yeah. You know, at that point when I first heard it I was thinking that everyone else would be super critical of Parzival for even opening the damn email. Yeah. And the way that the the conversation begins with H almost being like, you did what? You talked to who? Yeah, I, I was afraid shit was going to go down between them at that point. Yeah. Because, it, it, you know, in, in time back to the beginning of the conversation it was kind of a stupid thing to do. I mean, depending on which which side you stand on. I get why he did, though. I mean, I understand why he did. I don't know that I would have done the same thing, but I understand why. I got to wonder, because here he's 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 blaming Iraq. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is all a problem because he invited an asshole down into his basement because he's fun to make fun of. That was the response when Mm. Parzival asked him, why do you let that asshole come in here? Eh, he reminds me of how cool we are. That was the gist of it. He reminds me of how smart we are. And he's fun to poke. And now. In a, in a sick sort of way, this is Iraq's way of poking back. And it's really H's fault, which is not anything that the book gets into pointing blame. But if H hadn't brought him down for the fun of shitting on, this wouldn't be a problem. That's a fair point. Yeah. Fuck you, H. <laughs> <laughs> and fuck you, Iraq. <laughs> well, uh, do you guys have anything else about chapter 15? Oh man, I'm ready to reread, re 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 read chapter 16. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 16 will be coming up soon. Um as soon as we can get it down. But uh yeah, chapter 16 will be coming up. Guys, it's excellent to be back. Um 
<laughs> We've been waiting to come back. Um, it was uh, we, do, we took a little uh, little hiatus there, um, just to be completely transparent. I mean, part of it was burnout. Part of it was just us uh, trying to figure out how we wanted to structure the podcast and everything like that. Um, you know, and uh, and it's 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 been it's been a, a good little time of reflection for us. But uh, we're back now. We're happy to have Aaron here. Aaron, I think, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be a regular part of the podcast going forward, right? Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. This is great. I I would do this maybe not every day, but every other day. (laughs) Every day would be a bit much. (laughs) Just just a wee bit. I'll tell you, I I saw the second trailer, and and I felt... uh, I had been avoiding the first trailer because I was also experiencing a degree of burnout, but that second trailer hit and I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. I've got to get back into this. I've got to get back into this. I've, I've seen that trailer like at least two dozen times. It's just because it raises the hairs on the back of my neck. So I was like, Nope, no, we got, got to get back online. Got to do this. And sometime soon we'll, we'll, we'll need to do, we'll need to do a reaction. We'll Mm. really be a reaction podcast Break, about breakdown the second trailer but yeah like let's do a breakdown sometime in the next week or so at any rate <laughs> this has been and always will be get to the good part my name is ryan my name is chris and i'm aaron and that has been get to the good part we'll see you next week In case anybody's been wondering, since the uh, the end of season one is what we're going to call it, Chris has been doing yoga with his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> the things you're doing with your mouth right now make me insanely uncomfortable. I just want to say that. <laughs> I just want to just wanted to stretch out. I wanted to get the chops kind of just trying to loosen the lips a little bit. Loosen them. Get them Done. loose. Aaron, you feel pretty loose there in the lips. Uh- I I will once I've gotten through more of this drink. Okay, there we go.